This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Caitlin Chess, welcome to Viral Jesus. Because we've kind of weighted that word political with so many negative connotations that if someone wants to make kind of a quick witty point with a tweet or something, you have to be short, they can use that word as shorthand for partisan, for corrupt, for messy, difficult, mucky. And the unfortunate thing about that is that people don't always have the same connotations that you have when you're using something. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. According to a new report on politics and religion, highly vocal religious people who espouse political views that others in the faith do not share are pushing them out reports the Salt Lake Tribune. In Secular Surge, a new fault line in American politics, political scientists David E. Campbell and Jeffrey C. Lehman of the University of Notre Dame and John C. Green of the University of Akron contend that the growth in the U.S. secular population is because politics has pervaded faith, making it untenable for those who do not share these beliefs. That's from a fox13now.com article. Our guest today is someone who will help us talk about two of the things we are actually always told we shouldn't talk about, religion and politics. Caitlin Chess. Caitlin Chess is a writer, author, and theology doctoral student at Duke Divinity School studying political theology, ethics, and biblical interpretation. She has a theology master's in systematic theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. Caitlin is the author of The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor, which released with InterVarsity Press in September 2020. She also is a social media Jedi. She has over 32,000 followers on Twitter, and her content Content is so good, you guys, and her book is so worthy of your engagement. And she is just the perfect person to have on this episode. And I honestly, I just can't wait for you to meet her. So do you feel like social media is a good place to discuss politics, a bad place? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's kind of common wisdom at this point that like, no, it's a bad place. You shouldn't do it. <laughs> it's really bad. And and on a, there's a certain extent to which I agree with that in that it is difficult to have conversations about really hard things with people that you maybe don't have a real formed relationship with. It's really hard to do it when you don't have, you know, facial expressions and body language and all of that kind of stuff. At the same time, I think we really can kind of underestimate the potential to be engaged in good conversations with people, even though those things are still there. Those limitations are still there. And one of the things I keep coming back to is, one, it's really helped me learn how to communicate really well with people in just how I choose my words. I don't talk to people in real life exactly the way that I tweet, but tweeting has forced me to really figure out a succinct way of describing something yeah. and figuring out the best words that I can use. 
And also what I've really learned both in social media and then even some of my classes, we had to do a lot of discussion boards, which were kind of frustrating and difficult at times. But what I learned was that there's the first level of the person I'm having the conversation with. And I do have to realize at some point when this conversation isn't fruitful, it's not productive, it's not going anywhere good. But then there's the second level of everyone else watching that conversation. And I do think we underestimate the ability to model well conver- good conversations on social media yeah. in a way that, again, people just don't have access to in other ways. And so if everyone in your life is having the same conversation and you don't know what it would look like to engage them compassionately, but also with conviction, you might be able to see that on social media in a way that you couldn't see in your own real life. And that doesn't mean social media is the best place for political conversations, but it does mean I think there's more potential there than we realize. And there's more potential to interact with people who are very different from us. Sometimes this is geographically contained and sometimes it's not. But regardless of why, most of us in our real lives tend to interact more with people who are socioeconomically, racially, religiously like us. And social media can make that. Sometimes we can replicate that in social media, but sometimes we can actually interact with people who are very different from us. And so that's a really difficult thing. It can make having those conversations even harder, but it also could be a real gift if we think more carefully about how we're having political conversations on social media, because the rules that I have and like the way I tend to think about having them on social media is not the same as the rules that I have and the way I think about having them in person. And so if we either think I just have to you know bring those rules from in person onto social media, or I just don't do it at all, I don't think we're being as careful or reflective as we could be about this is a different medium. There's going to be different rules. There's going to be different ways of engaging. It doesn't mean it's hopeless. It just means it's different. So what do you do? Somebody is, you know, maybe purposefully antagonizing you. What is your plan of dealing with trolling? Yeah, Um, (laughs) it's different than dealing with other things, which is why I think the actual hardest thing is figuring out when that's what's happening and when it's not. Um, and being able, uh, yeah, being able to see, okay, sometimes someone just really doesn't understand or really disagrees with me. Yes. Can I tell you? <laughs> yes. So one time, Caitlin, I, somebody commented something and I read it offensively mm-hmm. and I felt like, oh, this person's trying to call me out. And then in my DMs, they said, I I'm autistic mm-hmm. and I'm actually trying to understand yeah. what you're saying. And I just had this moment with the Lord where I was like, I have got to put my armor down and always feel like everybody's attacked. Cause you yep. miss, like you just said, these opportunities to have really in-depth, beautiful conversations. And hopefully both of us learn something and grow. Yeah, totally. And I, what I've also learned is that I, there's a very distinct feeling that I will have when I get on social media and someone's response makes me really defensive or angry. And it's not the same feeling as when someone's actually attacking me and I rightfully feel upset or defensive or hurt. There's a different feeling that is really more of like an exhaustion or a frustration with the whole thing. And when I notice that feeling in myself, when I get on social media, someone has responded or asked a question and I like, I have that feeling. I have to learn how to identify that feeling and then go, okay, well, at least for today or for a few hours, we're not engaging because I recognize that that's a me feeling and not a, they're actually attacking me feeling, but learning to discern that feeling is its own kind of spiritual discipline that we have to work through. And too often we either go, okay, I I just, all of those feelings are the same and I just attack everyone all the time or I don't engage ever instead of going, no, there's times to stand up for yourself and there's times to engage with people who are 
being maybe more, um, you know, aggressive, but they're not being trolling. And then there's times to go, okay, no, this person has gone too far and we're just done. But if you're not listening to your own emotional cues, you won't know how to do that well. And I am not naturally good at that. I had to really learn how to figure out how to read myself well, and then to learn how to read other people well. And let me ask you, as things have grown for you online, did there come a point where you started being even more intentional? Right? Because as more people follow, as you see that number mm-hmm. go up, you have to, I believe, like have some type of responsibility to say, okay, now there's some 20,000 people that are logging on to hear what I have to say. And how am I representing God and myself just in, in integrity in the way that I'd like to as my best self in that moment? Yeah. Do you think about it more now before you oh, tweet? Oh, totally. I, <laughs> I feel like just in the last like six months, I've really realized, I, I think I had to learn. There was a while there when I wanted to start thinking more intentionally about it. But I had this weird feeling of maybe that's too pretentious or like maybe that's taking this too seriously or maybe like, you know, don't make a huge deal (laughs) out of it. And I had to really check myself and realize like, no, if there were 20 something thousand people in a room and I was standing in front of them with a microphone, I would freak out about every single thing I said. And yet I think it's presumptuous to like be more cautious about what I say and more thoughtful about it. And, And that's where the whole kind of, the, the balance comes in of, I want to treat this really seriously. I want to recognize the real power that I have. I've really been convicted lately over, you know, if someone's a pastor of a church with thousands of people, they should feel the weight of the kind of influence they have over others. I think the same is true of social media, of that kind of influence over people can really deform you if you're not thoughtful about it. So how am I being thoughtful about it? But also, how do I not take myself so seriously that I'm not able to be silly and playful and and take some of the pressure off of it? Which would be true if you were the pastor of a big church, too, of like, I take my responsibility very seriously, but I don't take myself so seriously that I end up in a position where I'm kind of wooden and intense all the time and I can't have fun. But that balance is hard. (laughs) It's hard. And I I really think that it's actually a skill Mm. Um, that has to be developed. You tweeted, here's your periodical reminder from me that political does not equal partisan. And when we constantly condemn the first word, political, when we really mean the second, partisan, we can communicate that our faith does not have the material, social, and communal significance that it does. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I, it's funny because that's the mixing up of those two words is something I see a lot in person, but it's also something I see a lot in writing and I see a lot on social media because we've kind of weighted that word political with so many negative connotations that if someone wants to make kind of a quick witty point with a tweet or something, you have to be short, they can use that word as shorthand for partisan, for corrupt, for messy, difficult, mucky. And the unfortunate thing about that is that people don't always have the same connotations that you have when you're using something. We all have our own different set of connotations. Are you a communication (laughs) major? Oh, my goodness. Did you take a comm class? I think you did. From uh, Karen Swallow Pryor, I will add. Did did. you really? We love love Karen. Karen taught communication? Well, it was a a writing class, but it was all focused on public writing. Like, how do you do that well? This makes so much sense. She's incredible. Okay, continue. I am so glad to hear that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So when we use that word as shorthand for corrupt or partisan or messy, and someone else doesn't have quite the same connotations that we have, they might think of that as just what it means to build a community that functions well, or what it means to vote or to show up at a city council meeting or go to a protest. 
and they mix, you know, those lines get crossed, we end up consistently communicating this idea that our faith is spiritual and personal and individual, and that it doesn't have these implications in the way our communities function that it should. And I don't think a lot of the I think some of the people who use that word in a negative way intend to use it in a negative way, but some people don't. They just kind of use it as that shorthand, and then they get themselves in a lot of trouble. So when did you see things starting to grow for you online? Were you shocked by it? What even was the tipping point for you? Yeah, it's it's weird because I got on Twitter at the end of college because I took this class from Karen Swell Pryor and she was like, if you want to write online, <laughs> <just> love this. <laughs> if you want to write online, you should get on Twitter. So I did. And it's been kind of fun to really have started it at the beginning of seminary and have continued doing it throughout all of seminary and really hopefully getting to share what I'm learning and how I'm growing. And I do think it's taken... So how many years is that? Do you know? Five. Okay. So you've been doing this for five, five years. years. Yeah. Okay. And I think the first two or three of those was just like, <laughs> you know, me with a couple hundred followers, like trying to make connections yep. with editors and other people. And really those first few years, it was really just me trying to figure out what the conversation was. Like, what are people, <laughs> what are people talking about yeah. on Twitter? <laughs> like, what is Christian Twitter doing? Which is why so many people in seminary, by the time I finished, would come to me and say, like, how do I get on social media and kind of do the thing you're doing? Or how do I publish a book? Both of those things, I didn't know what to tell them because I was like, this has mostly been an accident. I wasn't really trying. (laughs) And most of what I did came from this real like earnest desire to just figure out what people were talking about and learn about the church and what, what are we concerned about? And what are we figuring out how to, you know, how to respond? And what are the questions people are asking and the answers people are debating? And, and it didn't really come from a social media strategy. It came from okay, I've been listening to this conversation for a little while. I slowly, as I've been in seminary and learning a lot, think I have some things to add and then want to interact with people. And I think the harder thing actually has been, I'm so used to just really trying to answer everyone and respond to everything that that setting boundaries as I've gone has been the harder thing. Because for me, it really was just a relationship building kind of thing. What do those boundaries look like today? You know, it's when I first moved, I just moved to Durham, North Carolina a few months ago to go to school. And I really, this is the first time I've moved somewhere new and been a new person as someone who's like on social media. And mm-hmm. I had the just like wonderful experience of so many people here reaching out who knew of me before I knew of them and trying to be kind and welcoming and had such a joyful time getting to meet people here. But I did reach a point when I kind of thought, okay, you have an actual life (laughs) that has limits on it and you have to find Mm -hmm. some way to kind of put boundaries in them. And so for me, it was really more connected with a larger sense of how do I just say no to anything that conflicts with a yes I've already said? And how do I make sure I'm prioritizing the right yeses? And also how do I recognize that like, I'm such a people pleaser and I want to say yes to everyone. And it's been a real spiritual discipline for me to figure out how to really as graciously and kindly as I can say no sometimes to people And I think that's true of everyone. Like, that's not just a social media thing. That's just how you have to learn how to do your life. But for me, it's taken this particular form, which is I want to say yes to everyone who asks me anything for any resources or to meet up or to do anything. And I've had to really learn what does it look like also to just say no in the best possible way, (laughs) to not just ignore someone, but to really kind of graciously say no. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate 
have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. Yeah. And and I think you're right. This is a conversation that so many people in different facets, whether online or off, have to realize how to navigate for themselves. But it is true that an online, it becomes just there's so much because you're exposed to so many different people. That's a question I still ask myself all the time is how do I figure out I want to be faithful with what God has put in yeah. my hand, but I also, yeah, want to have a real life. So did you figure out the answer to that? Well, no, I, let not me know. Really at all, except for, I think the question I keep coming back to is what have I actually been called to do? Because it's so easy for me. I don't know if this is true for you, but any little opportunity <laughs> that comes up, I think maybe this is the one that I didn't notice. And like, it's come out of yeah. nowhere and I should say yes to it. And I always have to remember, there've been other times in my life when this idea to like write a book in seminary, just sort of like, landed in my lap and I didn't know what to do with it, where I so strongly felt, no, God is calling me to do this. Like, I can't deny how strongly that feels. And then when I remember those times, and then I think of a random email that's like, do you want to write this thing? And I feel nothing, you know, no connection to it. I go, okay, in comparison, no. I mean, I might say yes to things I don't feel that full calling towards just because there's other good reasons. But when I'm tempted to say yes to things I kind of know I shouldn't, I, I remind myself of those times when I felt a really strong calling and go, you're not going to miss the thing. You're not going to miss the thing God is calling you to do if you don't feel that way and have those signs from other people in your life that are pointing it to you. There's no risk that you're going to like mess up God's plan, but I have to tell myself that all the time or I risk taking on too many things. My mentor said something very similar to that to me. And this was a couple of years ago. And he just said, do the things that only you can do. And if there's somebody else yeah. that can do it, why do you, why are you doing it? And I, so for me now, like if a student writes me and says, I want to literally any student writes me and says, I really, can I meet with Heather? I want to have a conversation about my master's program. I will do that. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Because I feel like that's what God has called me to do is lead students. Yeah. And so that is, this is such a good conversation for content creators in particular to figure out, know, know the content you're even producing. Yeah. And then as much as you can and as best as you are able with, of course, rest, how do you serve that thing? Have you had a, like a lowest point? Has there been a point for you, especially actually, let's look in this writing a book. Have Did you ever have a point where you said, this is not going to happen? Mm-hmm. Like, this is just, I don't see it. I don't feel it. And I don't believe it's even going to happen anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like when you first start a project like that, you're so excited and it's like, this is going to be amazing. I have all these great ideas. I was just so thrilled to get the opportunity to do it, that it was like, this is going to be amazing. And then, you know, coming up on the deadline of the first draft is when I was really just like, no, like this is not, this is not going to happen. 
um, I don't think I've ever had a coherent thought in my life. Why is anyone asking me to write a book? <laughs> like, this is so, like, why? Um, and so it's good. You really need people in your life that will tell you the truth. This is something my mom says all the time. If I call her and I'm freaking out, which happens too often, I get, I'm way more scared of everything I'm doing than most people would guess. I'll call my mom freaking out and she'll say, tell yourself the truth. That's the number one thing she says all the time, which is code for... You just gave me goosebumps. Yes, it's... I love your mother. I do too. She's incredible. And <laughs> that has like become... It's something that now is just stuck in my head and that I hear myself saying to other people. Because on some level, I know the world is not going to end. And I know God will be faithful to the things he has promised. And I know I actually have had a coherent thought and I can do this thing. But I tell myself so many lies over and over again that that's the thing mm. that I'm swimming in. And it takes someone to snap you out of it sometimes. And I, I tend to think that willpower is enough for everything. If I just try hard enough, I'll do it. And in reality, no, I need other people to kind of break through yes. the fog of what I have told myself and tell me to tell myself the truth. Actually, I want to ask you that. Do you have an intentional like group of people that you've set around yourself to counsel you, give you wisdom, help you decide which thing I say yes to? What does that look like for you? Yeah. I mean, I have a handful of friends and then really my mom is just, she mm. has been my mentor forever. And I really love that ever since I've been an adult, our relationship has really changed to being someone who is yeah. just really a confidant and a mentor to me. And then there's people, she doesn't quite understand the social media world as much. She's great with so many things, but I have a handful of friends that I send any like tweet I'm not sure of, or like response to someone, or or sometimes I'll send them something someone has said to me and be like, I think they're being horrible. Are they being horrible? Or is that just me, you know, in my feelings about this and I'm not interpreting it well? And that's huge. When you lose online the facial expressions and body language, you can't totally make up for that. But I think one way you can help with that is having people in your life that can read your own stuff and can read other people's stuff and be honest with you about no, actually ignore that comment. Or like, no, this actually is a moment for you to maybe show some other people how to graciously respond to someone who's attacking you. Or maybe this isn't, you know, people who not only know how to read your stuff and read other people's stuff, but also people who know what emotional place you're in and could very gently say, you want to fight with this person because your life is out of control and you feel like slam dunking <laughs> them on Twitter will make you feel good. And right. I need people who can be honest enough to say that. I know yeah. other people who will not. They'll be like, oh, that's, yeah, great. You know, fine. You need someone who will be like, no, you're not in a good place. Get off Twitter. Caitlin, that is so wise. And I really want to challenge everyone listening that you figure out who those people are for you that you can send. Because I do that too. Yeah. I have a handful of people that I'll send a tweet to and they will say, uh-uh, that's not, like, this isn't even you. Mm -hmm. Don't even do it. It's just not worth it. And it's so important that we have people that hold us accountable. I've been doing this new thing on this season where I like to kind of ask people on Twitter if they could sit down with Caitlin Chess, what would they ask her? And so I wanted to read to you some of the questions that we got. We had a lot of questions from you, by the way, <laughs> or for people who wanted to ask you things. Um, Ale Babino says, what do you believe is the relationship between your natural giftedness and purposeful development of your gifts? Mm. How have you seen that over your life? And I thought that question was so good. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because like I said earlier, people will ask me how to write a book or how to get involved in some of the stuff I'm doing. And it's always so funny to me because I just wasn't, wasn't trying to at all. But then I can look back and see like 
oh no, I, I wrote a bunch of letters to the editor, to the you know local newspaper when I was in high school or middle school. You know, I can see things that show a trajectory of like, oh, you've always sort of been gifted in some similar ways. And I think for different people, it's different. I think some people will identify more early on, here's where I'm gifted and here's how I should develop it. For me, I'm really thankful in retrospect for all of the little detours where I wasn't doing the thing that would ultimately end up being the best thing for me because it shaped me in different ways and it formed me in different ways. And so I think on one hand, like you said earlier, it's it, we want to recognize where God is leading us and we want to recognize where we've been gifted, but also we can take off some of the pressure <laughs> that like we won't, we're not going to miss the big thing. Uh, we're not yeah. going to get off completely track and we're going to you know mess up and do something we weren't supposed to do. God will use all of those other random things. And so I think there's good use in recognizing where we've been gifted and developing those things. But I also think sometimes we can just let go a little bit and and go where God leads. And if we end up doing, I worked at a popsicle store for a year in seminary. Like that was not at all developing any of my gifts, except for <laughs> except for the part where I had great conversations with people that weren't Christians. And honestly, growing up in the bubble I was in, I had never had those before. So I would, I mm. if I had signed up for only the kinds of things I thought would develop my gifts, I would never have had this weird job at a popsicle store. And yet now I can recognize the way it actually did develop things for me that were important. Sean Lowe, who was one of my favorite bachelors, um, he has this great quote where he says, everything you do doesn't have to be Christian as long as you stay Christian in everything mm -hmm. you do. And then you yeah. can, when you stay Christian in everything you do, even at the popsicle store, yeah. <laughs> I get to learn these new things about myself and about God. All right. Jordan J. Nicker writes, I would love to know what she thinks it looks like to healthily deconstruct one's own false political gospels. And then secondly, what it looks like to guide others on that journey while maintaining good relationships with the people that are still believing those false gospels. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, gosh, that's really good. It's a big question, but you did write a book about yes, it. Yes, that's good. Um, you know, I think for the first one, it's kind of what I said earlier about really spending some time in reflection about your media habits because those shape those political gospels that you believe so strongly. Mm. Um, and then I, sometimes I'll even tell people like, take some of the like news that you watch or listen to or something that you read very often and just take that one kind of artifact and evaluate the story that's in it. And it might surprise you and it might kind of show you some other stories you're picking up in other places as well. Um, but in terms of the second question, I really, I've been so convicted lately over how often people my age, I think want to just fix some of the problems in the church really quickly. And we think mm. if we just can figure out the right answer, okay, let's identify these five false political gospels. Here's the real gospel. We'll do a PowerPoint presentation. People will know the truth and it will be done. Instead of recognizing that part of the power of those political gospels is how strongly um, intertwined in good theology those can be in people's lives, how unnoticed mm. they can be, um, how much a part of everyday life they are. And so I guess the best advice I could give to someone is just build, continue building a relationship and think about it like a discipleship thing. Like no one is asking you to sit down and deconstruct all these political gospels in one coffee. They're asking you to be reading scripture, to be praying with people. And it's really incredible how all throughout scripture, there are tons of passages and important themes and stories and uh, epistles that directly contradict those false political gospels. And if we just sit down and outline all those things for someone, it will not have the effect that slowly over time doing the work mm. of discipleship, you're studying through a book of the Bible and, oh, here's this thing about foreigners and how we treat foreigners. Or here's this thing about how Jesus treated men and women. Or here's this thing about how we use our money. 
that happens in an organic way that can really change people's hearts and lives. And I've seen that in churches I've been in. And that never happens, that that always happens in a better way than if we sit down on a Wednesday night and say, okay, we're going to fix everyone's political theology today. That's never going to do the work that the slow work of discipleship will do. People can't see me, but I am nodding my head so hard the entire, we are going to adopt you <laughs> as a communication major because you understand the communication so well and it's instinctive and that just makes oh, me so you. excited um, for your future and your career. Uh, Bethany Parr, nine, asks, what has her experience been joining Christian academic circles as a millennial woman? I love having a voice for me on the Holy Post, and I appreciate her perspective. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. Um, it is funny on both levels. One, I've been in evangelical academic institutions for 10 years now, and it's just, it is hard being a woman in a lot of those. It's such a gift. I try and remind people that for every kind of um, idea that they have of how hard it is, and it often is very hard, the thing that we don't always talk about is the fact that because it's so hard, I have the best relationships with other women who are studying theology and biblical studies because you have to find each other and you have to support each other. And I would not trade those really close relationships for anything. I think those are such a gift and we encourage each other so well. I mean, I have a list of women on my phone that every step of the way, like, finishing my last classes, graduating, getting into my doctoral program, like I will text them and they will lose their minds. Like they are just <laughs> the best supportive people. Um, and the other interesting thing about being a millennial, that's, that's so funny. I hadn't thought about this until now, but it's really relevant to your work is that I have such a strong sense of continuing to be in academia. I really want to teach. I really want to be an academic, write academic stuff, but I never want to not be writing popularly and speaking popularly and being engaged in the conversation yes. more broadly. And I've realized that that's a real generational shift, that people in my you know, really prestigious institution had a really particular path to getting into the place academically that they're at. And none of it involved writing a popular book or being on social media. And it is completely foreign <laughs> to them that anyone would want to do that. And so it's been interesting to kind of find people who are also interested in doing that and kind of carving our own space and all of that to recognize that the world is different than it was for them and the career opportunities are different than it was for them. And that a lot of us just see this real potential in being more public facing and not being kind of sequestered in an academic place, which can can be really good. That can be really lovely and beautiful and people can be faithful to their vocations by staying you know, solely academic. But I think like a lot of young people who are kind of doing different things and mashups of different jobs, a lot of people today, including myself, are like, my vocation doesn't fit this one box that someone kind of wrote up a job description. It's going to be different than that. And that can make it kind of uncomfortable, but it can also make it really exciting. Travis Rabb said something that I think everyone's going to agree with when they hear it. They say, I would join Gabe in asking, is she really 50 to 60 years old in a mid-20s body? I've never heard someone so young say things that are essentially wise words. That typically takes age and experience. And I just, you don't have to respond to that, but I just want you to know Aww. it just drips from everything that you say. And it just makes me so proud. My little teacher Hello. heart. I can just cry <laughs> little teacher tears right here. Um, Caitlin Chess is the author of The Liturgy of Politics. You can find that book on Amazon or at InterVarsity Press website. We love InterVarsity Press books here or wherever books are sold. Caitlin, I've been doing this thing where now I ask people this final question. It's Ooh. new. I hope you're ready for this, okay? Virtually all credible historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, agree that there is plenty of evidence that a man named Jesus actually lived and walked this earth 2,000 years ago. How can we, 2,000 years later, 
best communicate who Jesus was and what his mission is today? Ooh, um, it's, it's Bible Jesus. I we got to ask that no, question. I love it. The first thing that comes to mind for me is however you're best gifted to communicate it. Um, mm. I have found myself in such a position that I, I love writing. I love speaking. I love being on social media. Words matter so much to me. Like I love being able to just see in someone's face that I picked the right combination of words and it clicked for them. But I know so many people for whom what I just said is either terrifying or impossible or they've never experienced that and it just sounds strange. And so I have seen people who should be gifted in every way to share Jesus. They're outgoing. They have great communication skills. They're articulate. And yet sometimes they don't. Like it just doesn't end up clicking with people in the same way. And yet I've seen other people who are incredibly introverted, who struggle to kind of find the right way of saying something, but they've built a relationship that is worth so much more than Mm -hmm. anything I could do. And so I just think the best thing, especially for a really divided church, is for us all to just recognize my gifts are really valuable and I want to use them well. And recognizing that someone else's gifts are just as valuable doesn't detract from mine at all. And it actually will make us a stronger people if I cheer on whatever someone else is doing as long as it is what God has called them to do. Thanks, Caitlin, for joining us for this episode. We like to end every episode with a little segment I call Growing Viral, and this is where I give you some direct strategies you can implement into your real life that will help you be a better communicator and connector both online and off. Here is your Growing Viral homework. I want you to spend some time looking through scriptures and seeing what the Bible itself actually teaches about the things we vote on that we call politics. What does the Bible say about immigration? What does the Bible say about your responsibility to the poor? What does the Bible say about the sanctity of life? I am someone who very much believes we should submit our political ideas to the authority of scripture where we are able to. Have you ever taken a moment and not just listened to what someone else told you scripture says, but actually engaged with scripture yourself on some of these topics that become hot button political issues? Each of us, especially in this highly politicized world that we're living in and navigating right now, should each take at least 20 minutes, right? To read five to 10 verses on each of these topics that we end up screaming at each other about. And Caitlin Chess wrote a book that can help you navigate your political identity as a Christian next episode, we are going to hear from Bob Roberts Jr. about religious freedom. And the week after that, we're going to dive into a powerful conversation with Justin Gibney, who is an attorney and political strategist in Atlanta, Georgia, who leads the AND campaign as its co-founder and president. It's important to know not just what you believe, but why, as a Christian who believes scripture is wisdom and truth, why you believe it. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. Next episode, we talk to the senior global pastor at Northwood Church, Dr. Bob Roberts Jr., who is also the co-founder of Multi-Faith Neighbors Network about interfaith relationships and the value of religious freedom. I love growing with you guys on Viral Jesus.
This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.